And now hear God's holy word from Romans chapter 8, our epistle reading for this Trinity Sunday. Romans 8, beginning with verse 12. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For you live, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let's give thanks together. Father, we praise you because you have revealed yourself to us as a God who is a community and a God who is in eternal relationship, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we praise you that you have brought us into this relationship, that you have brought us into your eternal covenant. And so we cry out, holy, holy, holy with the angels. And we ask that you today uh, pierce our hearts, pierce our minds and our ears with the truths and the reality of this covenant love that you've expressed and, and, and exhibited throughout eternity and now this, this love that you have brought us into. So Father, cause us to rejoice in these things today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Kazushige Nishida is a Tokyo businessman who for the last two years has rented his wife and his adult daughter. He was featured in a recent article in The New Yorker about the Japanese rent-a-family industry. Think of it like Uber or Netflix, except it's wife and kids instead of DVDs and cars. Uh, the two women who play his family members at a rate of 40,000 yen or $345 a week each, they aren't related to him. Uh, they work for an agency called Family Romance, one of hundreds of companies who rent out replacement relatives. So once a week, uh, his, his make-believe wife and his make-believe adult daughter meet him at a restaurant after work, or they have his keys to his apartment, or they, they get into his apartment and start cooking supper and give him, one night a week, the illusion of family life, the illusion of coming home to a warm house. So in Japan, if you are too busy at, at, at your job, if you're too busy for the day-to-day -day responsibilities of home life, too busy for the responsibilities of, of being a husband and a father, but you still want that occasional family experience, you still want that home-cooked meal, or if you want to take someone to an office party and pretend that she's your wife, or if you're elderly and you would like the company of a grandchild for a few hours a week, who won't ask you for money, I presume, other than what you've agreed contractually to pay them. If you need this companionship, you fill out your profile and the agency will send someone to your door. Now this sounds like something out of some kind of dystopian futuristic novel where even family companionship is something you have to pay for. There's something very odd and unsettling about this. Someone said that if you wanna know what the future of the United States is, look at Japan. Japan's present is America's future if we stay on track with our current economic and, and social demographic trajectory. Japan 
over the last decade or so has experienced an extreme stagnation of their economy, which has resulted in very few career corporate jobs for the very overly educated college graduates who end up working minimum wage in the service sector. Now we're starting to see that same thing here. And while their economy flags, marriage rates and birth rates are in free fall. They are plummeting, marriage rates and birth rates. The Japanese government estimates that women in their early 20s have a one in four chance of never marrying. 25% of Japanese women will never marry and a two in five chance of remaining childless. That means the birth rate in Japan stands at 1.4 presently. That's 1.4 births per woman. And it needs to be around 2.2 if the population is even going to replace itself. 2.2 children per, women is, per woman is, is known as replacement level, just to sustain the population. Now, the birth rate in the United States, by comparison, is barely at replacement level. You take immigration out of that, and we're way below uh, uh, replacement level. And what this means is that the Japanese population is quickly getting older. It's not replacing itself with children as the younger generations reject marriage and reject fruitfulness in marriage. And so you've probably heard this that somewhere around 2016 in Japan, sales of adult diapers surpass sales of baby diapers in the, in the nation of Japan because the, the population is getting that much older. Now, there are a host of religious and economic and societal forces behind these numbers, but the reality is that young people just aren't interested in pursuing marriage. They're not even interested in romance or intimacy with another living, breathing human being and are turning to all manner of perverse artificial alternatives. The Japanese government also estimates that there are one million Japanese young people living in their bedroom and who never leave their bedroom. There's a whole uh, subculture of, of Japanese young people who never leave their bedroom and live in their parents' homes. They don't go to university. They don't go to work. So there's this whole culture of isolation, fragmentation, individualization that at the same time is crying out for connection. So this is the same culture that, that produces a rent-a-family. We need some sense of connection, but we don't know how to get it. And I can't imagine, if you, if you try imagine living in a city, the population of Tokyo, 38 million people, living in a city of 38 million people, and being absolutely alone, being completely alone and feeling alone. Now, that's the reality. And if we can hold Japan up as a crystal ball and say, if we don't change anything, that's where we're headed. Uh, I'm afraid we're going to look like this in not too uh, far distant future. This is all heartbreaking. This is very tragic for us because we know that God said it's not good for man to be alone. He created us to live in these one flesh relationships called marriage. He created us for communal life. He made us in his image and he is a community. He is a community, and so for us to reflect that image and for us to embody and fulfill that image, we must also live in community. The God of creation is an eternal community of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of God that breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life and made him a living soul is the Spirit who is in communion with Father and Son. The Spirit of God, now think about this, the Spirit of God 
entered the dust of creation and formed mankind. God did not create mankind at a distance with some neutral uh, thing called nature and then, and then pursue him at some later point to enter into covenant with him. That's not what happened. God, who is a covenant community, produced man out of that community. The Spirit of God breathed into the nostrils of Adam and created him uh, as a living soul. And this Holy Spirit is the one who brings us into relationship with each other and with God. The Spirit is the bond of eternal covenant. And so the Spirit is there from the beginning, imparting that life to us and bringing us into fellowship and into relationship. The God who is identified by relationship gives us life. And so our life flows from the Trinity. The further we move away from the triune God by our rebellion and our rejection of him and his love, and the more we corrupt ourselves with sin, the more we put ourselves in debt, those things we've been seeing in uh, the, our study in Ephesians, the more we do that, the more isolated and more confused by human relationships we're going to be the more dysfunction becomes ordinary the further we move away from the, the triune God. Only by knowing him and being known by him do we have the kind of interpersonal connections that make us truly human. We're covering all of this today and we're singing St. Patrick's Breastplate and we're reading these passages because today is Trinity Sunday on the church calendar. And I'm thankful that we take one Sunday a year to stop and reflect upon the critical importance of the doctrine of the Trinity, which we might otherwise tend to forget or, or ignore or pass over. Maybe we just wrongly uh, assume it's too confusing to understand, so we might just leave it alone, don't mess with it. No, we take at least one Sunday, and I pray that every Lord's Day, you come through worship knowing, yeah, we, we believe and trust in a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and everything we do is Trinitarian. But especially on this day, we stand and confess boldly that we believe in one God who is one single essence in whom there are three persons, truly, eternally, distinct Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that the true and living God is three and one. And, th and this isn't some arcane doctrine of men that has just passed its expiration date and we need to let it go. This is not some abstract theory. This is how God reveals himself to us in the scriptures. This is how God reveals himself to us in history. And if you are in covenant with God, you are in him. The Trinity is your home address. This is where you live. This is your environment. This is the air you breathe and the water you drink. And so in our gospel reading this morning, we can't escape it as Anthony read uh, from John chapter three, one of the most well-known passages in all the New Testament. What does Jesus say? He says, in order to enter the kingdom of God, in order to come into the realm of the new creation, in order to enter into life, you must be born of the spirit and of, of water. And to, to that end, the father has given his only begotten son so that those who trust in him can have everlasting life. What do we see there in just a few verses? Father, Son, and Spirit are each there working to secure the salvation of sinful, rebellious, dead mankind. The Father loved the world, for God so loved the world. The Father loved the world and he sent the Son. He sent his only begotten Son. The Son came down from heaven and is lifted up for the salvation of the world. So the Son 
dies for the world and the Spirit imparts life, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So if you were to ask uh, anybody or, or somebody were to ask you rather, where do you go to understand the gospel? Where would you send them? I hope one of the places you would send them is John chapter 3, right? I want to know, I want to know the gospel. Well, let's start with John chapter 3. And when you go there to explain the gospel, you find that the gospel is Trinitarian. That the gospel is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together to secure the salvation of mankind and to bring man to life and in fellowship with him. In our epistle reading from Romans chapter 8 that I read just a few minutes ago, we see this very same truths articulated. At the beginning of Romans 8, and we didn't start back there, but at the beginning of that chapter, we find that God the Father sends His Son for this mission, to put sin to death, so that we may walk according to the Spirit. You get that? The Father sends the Son so that we can walk according to the Spirit. A couple of verses later, we read, that the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. Do you see that all there? The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. In just a few words, you have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit spoken of as distinct personalities. And at the same time, the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God. And that comes out in that section we read together. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. They, they put to death the deeds of the body. That's how you know that they're sons of God. They put away the rebellion and the corruption. And they're the ones who cry out, Abba, Father. They know God, the Father of Jesus, as their Father. And we read, the Spirit confirms in us that we are children of God. And if children of God, that makes us join heirs with Christ, who is our older brother. We enter into his sufferings, Paul writes there. We share in his glory. There is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working together the work of redemption of mankind. It's, it's inescapable. The way that God acts in human history, the way that God interacts with mankind reveals who he is in eternity. The God that requires man to submit to him eternally models submission through the obedience of the Son and the Spirit. God doesn't ask of you anything that He doesn't model Himself. He asks that you submit to Him. What does that mean? Well, look at the way the Son submits to the Father. Look at the way the Spirit submits to the Son and the Father. That's, what he, that's, that's what's going on. That's what He's asking of you. The God who calls on man to glorify Him is not a God who stands separate from you and says, come on, praise me, praise me, glorify me. Oh, that's nice, that's nice. I deserve this. No, it's the God who shows forth what it means to glory in other persons. So the Spirit glorifies the Son and the Father. The Son glorifies the Father and the Spirit. The Father glorifies and praises the Son and the Spirit. The God who calls on man to glorify Him is the God who eternally shares glory among His persons. They each glorify each other. The God who works uh, to bring man into covenant with Himself is the God who is Himself in covenant. Now, I've, I've used that word covenant a few times already because I believe biblically that's the best way to describe what the relationship is between Father, Son, and Spirit, how they connect to each other, how they interact with each other. That's all, that's all covenant. But if you go to a Bible dictionary, if you read a commentary on Genesis or uh, a commentary on uh, Hebrews, when theologians write commentaries and they come across the word covenant in the Bible, they almost, you could just, it's like clockwork. They almost always go into explaining ancient Near East customs, like uh, Hittite suzerain treaties. You'll always see that, suzerain treaties between kings and vassals, between masters and slaves. 
And that always strikes me as backwards because it isn't as, as if God looked at Hittite culture and said, hey, that's cool. I'm stealing that. I'm, I'm going to do that. That's what I'm, that's, that, that looks good. I'm borrowing that. Nor does that kind of suzerain, you know, king and vassal, master and slave uh, treaty, nor does that represent really the most basic idea of covenant in the Bible. Now, it's true that God is a king and his people are his servants. His people are his vassals. That's absolutely true. That comes out in Mount Sinai. But even before Sinai, Yahweh says in Exodus 4, he says, Israel is my son, my firstborn. So a covenant takes into account not only obligation and obedience, it most certainly does take into account obligation and obedience. Sons and servants both must obey, but it also takes up mercy and loving kindness. So the covenant is a relationship of law. It is also a relationship of love. God has uh, 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 makes commandments, even God the Father makes commandments of the Son, and the Son and the Father command the Spirit, as we're going to see in just a minute. It has obligations. There are, there are boundaries. There are commandments. But a covenant is also a relationship of love as each member gives himself to the other. So, so when you read the word covenant, I want you to think primarily relationship. And every time you see the word covenant in the scriptures, I want a bulb to go off in your head that says relationship. And whatever bulb goes off presently, for those that you have, have it, that says Hittite suzerain treaty. I want that bulb to get unscrewed and throw it in the garbage uh, because it's, it's a real relationship. A covenant is a relationship, a relationship defined by God, a personal relationship between persons. That's what I mean by personal relationships. It's, it's a relationship between persons that involves a bond, a structure. It has boundaries. Our relationship, our covenant with God has sacraments, which means there's a means of renewing and sustaining the unity of that relationship. A covenant is a personal and structural bond between two or more persons. And that structure is defined by God. In fact, it's not only defined by God, it is defined in God. Jesus, the son, is in a relationship to the father. He obeys the father. He is loved by the father. The father responds to his obedience with, with blessing and glory. And the spirit binds this covenant together. So God is in covenant with God. And this is how God has revealed himself to us. His covenant is the source of and the model of our relationship to him and our relationships to each other. So just quickly this morning with a few minutes we have left, what can we observe about this relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Three things that I want to point out. First of all, in the relationship and the covenant of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there is hierarchy. We heard it in our readings today. The father sent the son into the world. The father says to the son, go, and the son submits to the father, and the, the son does what he says. Jesus says in John 8, this is Jesus speaking, he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. What does Jesus always do? Everything that pleases the father. Everything that you read about in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is pleasing to the Father. Everything that Jesus ever did was in obedience to the Father. The, even the titles, Father and Son, indicate that there's a hierarchy in the Godhead. 
The Son has eternally been the Son in relationship to the Father. He's always been the Son. The Father has always been the Father in relationship to the Son. The Father sends the Son. The, the Son does not send the Father. The Son obeys the Father, and the Father and the Son together send the Spirit. The Spirit does not send the Father and the Son. Now, the fact that the Son submits to the Father and does what He says does not mean that the Son of, is of less value or of less worth or of less substance or of meaning than the Father. Do you think that? Do you think that because the Son submits to the Father, that must therefore mean the Son is of less worth than the Father? But if you think that, you don't understand Jesus and you don't understand the relationship between the Father and the Son and you don't understand obedience or submission. Not at all. It doesn't mean that the Son is of less value or worth. In fact, Jesus is at the center of everything. Jesus is the member of the Godhead to which all glory flows. Jesus is the one who took on human flesh and he went through the suffering and separation of the cross and the grave. All glory flows to Jesus. God has sent him as king over the cosmos. Yet, in his role as son, he submits to the Father. The persons of the Godhead are equal in glory. They all possess the attributes of God, but they're all different in their operations and their personhood existing in hierarchy of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so if it's good for God, then this is good for ordering human society, isn't it? Couldn't we say that? If it's good for God to have an order and a structure, then it's good for human society in the family, in the church, in the state, it is good for there to be fathers. It is good for there to be elders. It is good for there to be kings. It is not good to pursue anarchy. It is not good to pursue uh, some kind of collective where we all just kind of put our stuff in the middle and take whatever you want because it never works. It never works because it's in conflict with the order of the Trinity. It's in conflict of the, of the, with the order set by God himself in God himself. So the first thing that we can observe is that there's a hierarchy in the Trinity, a glorious hierarchy. Secondly, we see that there is commandment and obedience. Now this flows out of the hierarchy naturally. If there are roles of authority and submission, then there must be commands and obedience. Jesus says in John 12, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak, and I know that his command is everlasting life. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father told me, so I speak. Jesus says, I'm under authority. I'm under the authority of the Father, and he commands me, and I obey him. The Father has commanded the Son what to do and what to say. And once again, everything Jesus did is in obedience to the Father. So if you hear me say that covenant is a relationship, and you think, oh yeah, relationship, I know what that is. That's where we all just get along and there are no boundaries, there are no expectations, there are no requirements. You know, we just kind of all get along. Well, you're missing the whole point and you aren't defining relationship the way that God defines relationship in the persons of the Trinity. The Father has expectations of the Son. The Son obediently meets those expectations and they both direct the Spirit. The Spirit goes where they say. So if God is the God who obeys God... Let that soak in. God is the God who obeys God. We must certainly obey. We have no other choice. 
And there must be God-defined order and structure and expectations and obligations and boundaries in human relationships if they are to work and if they are to be uh, reflective of the community of the Godhead. So thirdly, in addition to that, there is glory and there is blessing. This is another observation we can make about the Trinity. Now, as much as I want to underscore the binding obligations of the covenant, we cannot separate this from the personal care and love and familial aspects of the covenant. Within the Trinity, there is a continual, eternal, indwelling glorification exchanges of honor and deference. And I love John 17 because it comes out so beautifully there. It's one of my favorite chapters in the New Testament, if not the whole Bible, where Jesus is praying and he's talking about all of this in his prayer to the Father. Uh, and, and the way that Jesus paints this picture, he does it where you could never diagram this in two dimensions. You'd, how many can, we'd need like six dimensions, maybe, or more, to diagram this all. I know there's only three dimensions, maybe four if you count time. But in the way that Jesus says this, it, it, it uh, goes beyond the boundaries of, uh, of our ability to, to, to diagram it. I will just give you a few excerpts of what Jesus says here about his relationship to the Father and the Spirit. Jesus prays to the Father. He says, glorify your Son, that your Son may also glorify you. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, O Father, glorify me together with yourself with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And then Jesus speaks about his disciples and he says, I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those whom you've given me, for they are yours and all mine are yours and yours are mine and I'm glorified in them. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you. Draw that Venn diagram. How does that look? We're in him. He's in the Father. The Father's in him. <laughs> That's what he's saying. That you also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I have given them, that there may, they may be one just as we are one. I in them you and me, that they may be perfect in one and that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous father, the world has not known, but I have known you. The world has not known you, but I have known you. And these have known that you sent me and I declare to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. You see as the Father and the Son and the Spirit express glory and thanksgiving and gratitude to each other. Who gets mixed up in that? We do. We are in him and he in us. There's this mutual indwelling. The Father is in the Son. The Spirit is in the Son. The Spirit is the Spirit of the Father. The Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. There's this mutual indwelling that they have together before the foundation of the world and we get swept up in those exchanges of love and glory and honor and service. And so I want to, what I want you to see in this is that the biblical Trinitarian covenantal authority, the authority of the triune God is not a one-way street. The Father is not a totalitarian despot who is unmoved by the obedience of his Son. God the Father is not unaffected by the obedience of his Son. The Son obeys the Father, and in return, the Father 
showers the Son with glory and blessing and honor. The Father expresses an infinitely holy love, a pure delight, an acceptance of the work of the Son. And so if God the Father pours himself out on the Son in a deluge of thanksgiving and approval, then if you and I are to be godly, then we use our positions of authority to express never-ending gratitude when people obey and serve us. We get this image of such eternal gladness and satisfaction and appreciation among the members of the Godhead that as each member engages in creation, the other two are expressing glory and joy in him and cheering him on. And I just imagine uh, when creation is going on, the Spirit says, watch this. And the Spirit pushes back the darkness and the Father and Son says, boy, that is, that is great. Watch this. And the Father speaks and the world blooms with life. And the Son and the Spirit rejoice in the Father. And the same thing we've seen in Ephesians chapter 1, that the God, has cho- God the Father has chosen the elect before the foundation of the world. And the Son and the Spirit rejoice in that. And then the Son says, hold on, guys, watch this. And He comes and He gives Himself for His people. And the Spirit and the Father say, oh, my, oh look at that. Look at that. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And then the spirit says, it's my turn. And the spirit comes and fills the church and empowers them to walk according to the spirit. And the father and the son together rejoice in the work of the spirit. There's this continual eternal rejoicing in the works of the other. This is how God has revealed himself to us. This is how God has shown himself so that we can be like him. He shows us that a covenant exhibits hierarchy. That it, that, it, that, it's, that it requires obedience, that it's full of blessing and glory. And this is what life looks like. This is what acceptance and happiness and fulfillment looks like, being drawn into this eternal covenant. Apart from this, you have no life. You have no meaning. There's no relevance. There's no fulfillment apart from the life of the Trinity. And the farther and farther you get from this, the more misery and dysfunction and sorrow there is. That's, that's why I started with the crippling social disorder in Japan. And that's uh, because the article I read kind of kicked those thoughts off. And that's the trajectory we're on. The more we move away from Christendom, the more isolation and fragmentation we can expect. Every human social and relational pathology, every dysfunction is a rejection of the Trinity. Promiscuity, Pornography, fornication, adultery, cohabitation before marriage, they all cross boundaries, they all reject order, they all reject obligation and commitment. There's no hierarchy because Jesus is not recognized as Lord in any of these, uh, any of these dysfunctions and any of these pathologies. They are all a rejection of the Trinity. Inside of marriage, disintegration of God-ordained roles within marriage is a rejection of the Trinity. Men who don't submit to God by echoing God's demands, men who don't set expectations for righteousness, who don't initiate and take responsibility the way the father does, men who don't shower their children and wives with glory and honor, men who don't satisfy their children's mouths with good things like the father does in Psalm 103, fathers who don't crown their heads with blessing are nothing like the father in heaven. And thus that's a rejection of the Trinity. 
Women who don't respond with honor and obedience to God's lawful commands, who don't love their husbands the way Jesus loves the Father, the way that the Spirit follows Father and Son, they don't respect Jesus because they think submission means that you're some kind of doormat. Is that, is that what Jesus, is Jesus the doormat of the Father? Is that how that works? It's a, it's a rejection of Jesus. They don't honor his sacrifice because, oh, look at that, look at that doormat. That's, that's not what I want to be. I don't want to be that. Because you get it in your heads that submissions means a lowering rather than an elevating. But the Trinity shows us that, that submission means glory and honor. And it means an elevation, not a lowering. Children who don't obey their parents dishonor the God who obeys God. God obeys God. God obeys God. And you can't obey mom and dad. God honors God. The Father and the Son and the Spirit honor and submit to each other. You can't submit to mom and dad. That's a rejection of the Trinity. That's a rejection. You're denying the God who made you. Trace it all back. Anytime you say, what's going on here? You scratch your head and say, what? What is happening here? What is breaking down? Oh yeah, I know. We're not reflecting the Trinity. That's what it comes down to. Every human dysfunction in relationships is a denial of the Trinity. Because God is creator, because he has demonstrated his covenant loyalty through eternity and through human history, God gets to set the definitions. God gets to set the boundaries and the structure. So in response to that, you and I, when we preach the gospel and we live out the gospel, we don't, we don't offer the world this soft definition of love that affirms people in their sinful rebellion against God. That's cruel to do that. It's wicked. It's deceitful. It's a lie. We say, yes, God is indeed love, but that love draws you into a covenant and that covenant has obligations and that covenant gives you the power to put to death the deeds of the flesh as we read in Romans chapter 8. People of God, you and I live in a world full of lonely, isolated, broken, estranged people, and it's not getting better. It's getting worse on this present trajectory. We live in a world of people who don't even know how to have basic human family relationships. How long before you see an advertisement here? You see a banner ad, rent a family. This is the world we live in. We are in a position to call these people to leave their Unitarian lives and join the life of the Trinity. You and I do that by modeling the life of the Trinity in our public life as families and the church. Embrace the triune God. Model His covenant in your home. Let's do it together and we'll do it by His grace and by His Spirit. Let's pray. Father, we praise you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit once again because you have shown us these things. You've revealed yourself to us this way. And now we ask that you give us strength by your spirit to embrace you and to embrace the life that you impart from uh, your covenant, from your community. Father, strengthen us every day, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.